You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. We have seen this period of time put a pause on some of those things that are critical to our spiritual growth. They put a pause on things uh, where we are able to meet together, where we're able to share, where we're able to spend time with each other. And I'm going to ask you to, to vigorously, uh, passionately just pray for this next generation. And I'm so thankful that we do this. I know that we don't talk about it all the time, but it is absolutely necessary and it's something we need to continue to do for the health of God's people. And so just if, if it's in your heart and mind to pray, I hope what I'm saying right now just sticking on your heart like a magnet on a refrigerator and that you'll take that and say I'm going to pray for those interns I'm going to pray for them in Jesus name so I want you to do that okay well it's really really good as Annette said to be back to be here to have our feet on USA soil uh, we were gone for a couple of weeks we had an amazing team of people we really did we're all back now we're all uh, we made it home and without a few obstacles, but we made it home. But it was, a, it was a unique, wonderful, great trip. That's just the nature of God's spirit when he works in people who are willing to say yes, to step out, regardless of what may happen along the way, the journey that we have. And in this case, it was beautiful to see what God would do in people's lives and in, pe in our lives. And so if you're thinking about Israel in two years, we're going to be, I think, God willing, we're going to be headed out the door again. So we want to invite you to be part of that experience. It's really good. And with that said, we're going to jump right in this morning. And I want you to open your Bibles, if you would, with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16 and 17. That's 1 Samuel chapters 16 and 17. So while you're making your way there, actually it's the ninth book in the Bible. So that might make it easy. So look right there and uh, we're going to open up the pages of God's word and really study what God has for us. But as you do that and you're on your way there, I want to share with you uh, a particular word. Um, and typically, I, I don't usually do this unless it, a word sticks with me for a, a longer period of time. And this word has stuck in my heart for a long period of time. I shared it with the, the, the group that went to Israel. Uh, we were in, I was in Rob and Patty Gage's home group on uh, Tuesday night, shared it there. And really felt is something I need to share with you. It's a very simple phrase. And, uh, and, and I hope you embrace this because I think, I do think this is critical for, for where we are and some of the things that we faced over these last few years. You heard Pastor Chris say in his last week's message how many people basically just dropped off the planet from reading God's word. It's, it's, it's actually astounding, um, scary. I don't know all the things you would put to that. But... But it is, and, um, and, and the, the word that I have for you, and that God would do this in your life. And so if you're willing to receive what God has for you, I'm just going to ask you to be willing to receive this. This is the way I'm praying. I'm praying that God gives you, gives us a passionate curiosity for him and his word. Our imaginations need to be reignited. And don't ever eliminate imagination in the way that God wants to creatively use you, the way that he wants you to think. I think in a lot of ways, don't you think, in a lot of ways, we've gone numb in some of those areas. And so I'm praying for this church. I'm praying for God's people that this, this, this Holy Spirit in, in inspiration would just rise up in you, that there would be this unexplainable Holy Spirit-inspired curiosity for all things God. 
that you would say, you know, I'm going to put all these other things aside. Those other things that took so much of your time and your space. I mean, they rented your head for a long period of time. And I want that. I want to be delivered from that. I want to be delivered from that. I want to be alive in God's spirit. And I'm praying that for those that are watching, the same would be true for you. That wherever you are, whenever you hear this word, that you say, Lord, I want to be that candidate. I want to be that person that signs up to say, I want to have a passionate curiosity for you and for your word. And if you're on board, just say amen. All right, I'm going to pray for you. So do this. Just put your hand over your heart. We're going to dedicate it to Jesus. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we ask what we're touching right now, the depths of our heart, that you would ignite something that we we may not have even experienced before. And if we have, it might even be something that brings us back to our early days of following you when we were alive, when we were curious, when we looked at everything with new eyes because the old is gone, the new has come, and your Holy Spirit is making us alive. Lord, I pray against dread. I pray against, I pray against boredom. I pray against numbness. I pray against all those things that would come and try to counteract the inspiration of your word in our minds, our body, our soul. Lord, we just ask that you would do a good work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you receive that, say amen again. Good, good. Uh, listen, we really, this is something we need to pay attention to. It's something I know I'm needing to pay attention to. So here's what we're doing. The, pa the uh, passages that we're jumping into this morning, they're, they're well-known. Well-known passages both to the church and to the unchurched. So if you grew up in church or didn't grow up in church, this story uh, it's probably going to sound familiar to you. Um, it's widely regarded as one of the top ten most famous stories in the Bible. In fact, I looked at one poll and it had it second only to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I mean, really amazing. I don't know if you're kicking it around now. Maybe you're already there and you're looking at the scripture and you have it. And it's the story of David and Goliath. David, how many have heard of it? You've heard of David and Goliath? Yeah. It is an incredible story, and what I want to do today is, um, like most famous stories, um, there's a lot of lessons and details in and around the story that we might not have picked up. Why? Because the spotlight is really on, I mean, a, 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 a giant and a little boy, and what happens in that field in the Valley of Elah, it's, 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 and rightfully so, the spotlight's there, but what went on around that story? What are the lessons that I can learn that I can grow from, that I, that I can take right now and say, you know, I really needed that. I really needed to hear that. I needed to apply that to my life. Uh, there's so many things that fascinate. Um, they, they fascinate and inspire me about the life of David and his leadership. I think if I was going to study or if anyone asked me what leader have you studied the most, probably the life of David. Why? Because he's so prolific in Scripture. Uh, I think he's mentioned second only to, uh, to God and Jesus, I mean the Trinity. And so he is a central figure, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. There's a lot of reference to David. Uh, we, we begin today in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, David is a nobody. No one knows really who David is. In fact, you're going to see that his dad even forgets he's around. So nobody knows about David. The time that you get to the end of chapter 17, David is a national hero. So he went from nobody to somebody really fast. And you want to talk about a star, you want to talk about fame, 
He's the one who got it, and he got it in the Old Testament way. Go kill a big giant, and you're going to have a lot of fame. And that's exactly what happens here. So I think the best place for us to really jump in is by looking at some, some of the important and, in many ways, prophetic, prophetic comparisons between David and Jesus. Are you curious about that? I am. I looked at this, and I thought, wow, there are a lot of things here, and some of them I, can't, I don't even have time to mention. But I want you to make these comparisons because it's part of the caption, the title of what we're about. The gospel story, finding Jesus in the Old Testament. What a journey that's about. So I have about four or five things that I just want you to think about for a moment that have to do with comparing David to Jesus. First, did you know that both David and Jesus were born in Bethlehem? Now, right away, that sparks the imagination. Right away, I'm thinking, wow, this is pretty amazing. We, uh, we happen to have the benefit of just being there not too long ago, and um, that's Lily right there, one of those that traveled with us, John and Monterey's da- granddaughter. And right there is, um, is what the uh, early church and really the medieval church have said. That is the spot in the nave that Jesus was born. That's the very place. Now, what I'll say is this. I'm not sure about that. What I am sure about is you're probably within uh, square feet of that spot. So it is a, the general location of where Jesus was born which was amazing to actually be there and be part of that. For the trips that we've made now, that's the first time we'd actually gone into the church nativity and spent time there. And the next, the next uh, picture that I want to show you is uh, what the fields of Bethlehem look like now. Uh, so there's still some farming, there's some industry, there's things that, that go on there. But the reason I'm wanting you to see this once again is so that you would look at something like this and say, yeah, I, I, now I can picture now I can imagine some of the things that, that were out there. So here is the little field, the little town of Bethlehem. And in these fields, David worked in anonymity. It was in these fields that nobody knew really who David was. These are the fields that God did his best work in the heart of David. And yes, I'm going to repeat it again. I think God did his best work in David's life right in those very fields that you're looking at. Some of those very stones are stones that David probably looked at. Certainly the topography hasn't changed that much. It's something that David was part of. And the reason I say that is God is determined to lay the best foundation in your life. He's determined to lay a foundation for you to grow. Where was it for David? It was in the fields of Bethlehem. And typically the best place for you and me to grow is not on the stage. Yeah, it's usually behind the curtain on the stage. No one knows you're there. No one knows who you are. By the way, as long as you can, take advantage of that. Because there's a lot of lessons that are to be learned for being in the fields of Bethlehem. We all need a field or fields of Bethlehem. And here's what I mean. We all need those places where God can work in our hearts in solitude. That's what happened here. David, you learned to be an artist. He learned to be a warrior. He learned to be a musician. All of that took place in these fields that you're looking at up on the screen today. And and here's the big question, I think, for all of us. Where is your field of Bethlehem? Where is your field of Bethlehem? And, and, And I can say this. Your field of Bethlehem will not have a TV in it. It will not have a phone in it. It will not have some of the modern implements that we have to make our society run a little better, all of it fine and good, but typically the fields of Bethlehem that we find ourselves in are absent of all those things, present one thing, and that is the presence of Jesus and you. Where is it? 
for you, it might be crowded around, but in your heart, you know you're in that moment. You know you're in a field of Beth. It has a distinct feeling about it. It has an unusual feeling about it. Uh, some have called it the dark night of the soul. I mean, I've heard a lot of labels put on it. And it doesn't even have to be that drastic. It's the field of Bethlehem. Now, here's what God wants to do. In that field, uh, a place that God develops your character, he develops your calling, and he develops your competencies. Those are your gifts. It's in that field, the fields of Bethlehem, that that's what God wants to do. And by the way, if you've been and experienced the fields of Bethlehem, and, and you're, 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 growing on, you know, you're growing up in Jesus, believe me, there will be other places he'll pull you out. And he'll say, I need to talk to you for a little while. I need to spend time with you. And it usually has to do with one of these three things or all three. Character, calling, and competencies. Usually that's what God wants to deal with. Number one, don't you think? It's character. It's our heart. That's what he wants to deal with us about. And then I think it's, listen, I think it's, I'm going to make a bold statement here. Really am. Uh, I think it's safe to say that without these fields, there is no story of David killing a giant. Without these fields, there is no story of a giant being slayed. Because it was there that he learned all of these things. It was there that he picked up all of this. So the instruction that I, that I want to give you, and I know it's the instruction God's Spirit is giving me, if you take advantage of the fields of Bethlehem, the observations and lessons you are learning, you will grow and you will inspire others to grow as well don't waste it by mumbling don't waste it by grumbling don't waste it on if i could have should have all of those things that we do come to this field and say i am yours send me i am yours what do you want to do with me see bethlehem means house of bread i love that i love house of bread bread by the way is the foundation of life in every culture Every culture has a form of bread. I've, I've, I've figured that out. I mean, it's not a, a scientist that has to figure that out or theologian. But everywhere I go, uh, there's a, a base, something built on. Your meal is built on bread. In Kenya, it's chapate. Um, in, in Mexico, it's tortillas. In here, it's Bob's Red Mill. I don't know what it is here. we got so many bread. But... But, we, but cultures are built, food is built around bread. In John chapter 6, you remember Jesus said, For the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, I am the bread of life. Jesus is the substance of what we need. Jesus is the foundation of what we need. Whoever comes to me will never, ever go hungry. And then again, I look at Bethlehem. Going back there, Bethlehem is also referred to as the city of David. Jesus is referred to as the son of David. A little side note there. Bethlehem's a little, got a little grudge going on right now because Jerusalem hijacked the city of David and brought it over to their, to their, to their side of the neighborhood. Because the, if you say the city of David today, it's a little small spot we attended in. It's, it's actually his palace, the first the first place that David set up home and conquered the Jebusites, he set up a place there. And then we call Jerusalem now the city of David. And those that live in Bethlehem, they're not really happy about it. 
So what we're going to say is there are two cities of David. So if you hear it, it's either Jerusalem or Bethlehem. So this is what happens here. It's the son of David Jesus is known by. Both David and Jesus are from the tribe of Judah. Remember that. Saul was a Benjamite who was the king before, and now David and Jesus from the tribe of Judah. Both Jesus and David, as I mentioned earlier, grew up in obscurity. They, they grew up in absolute obscurity. What a way for kings to grow up. That's why people didn't see them. That's why they didn't notice them. Why? Because they weren't doing what the typical next king does. Uh, here we have David in the fields of Bethlehem. Jesus we have in a little town Barely a spot on the map called Nazareth. Did you know when they said, oh, that's him who comes from Nazareth? Do you know what they're really saying? Oh, that's Jesus. He's a hillbilly. That's what they're saying. That's what they're saying. And so you have both of them with that same kind of upbringing. You don't expect kings to come from Bethlehem or Nazareth. Now, a thousand years after David, what happens? Man, a heavenly choir shows up in this venue. This is the venue. It's an outdoor song fest. I mean, angels from heaven show up and they start singing about the Messiah, the king who's born in a manger. They sing the song. They say, unto you this day is born in the city of David. That's Bethlehem. One who will be called Christ the Lord. He is your king. He is your Messiah. I don't know. I want to be there. I'm going to ask God to do a little rerun on that one. Get to heaven. Say, hey, could you just give us a little clip of that? Because I'd like to be part of that. That would be a lot of fun. I think in our story today, David will be anointed king. And this anointing actually is the first anointing of three anointings that David receives. And I want you to hear some of this because it's, it's so important to our own development and how God gets there. Sometimes we look at David and we say, wow, voila, he got there. Sometimes we look at Jesus, voila, he got there. No, grew in wisdom and stature before God and before man. That's exactly what happens here with David. David's first anointing is private. It's right here in his father's house. His second anointing is in Hebron, the used-to-be capital before Jerusalem. He was anointed there. And then the third anointing is uniting the two tribes that were divided, the north and the south. And now he's anointed to be king over Israel. So he has these three very significant anointings. I find it curious for me when I was reading this. I thought it was really a foreshadowing or at least a telling of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Finding God in the Old Testament. Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Now here's something that you need to keep in mind. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. We use it. We throw the word around. Anybody know what the word anoint literally means? I mean, it's pretty fascinating. The word anoint, we use it here. I hear people say, and they are anointed by God. You know, you hear that. It's used in a, a lot of different ways. What, what anointing literally means is to smear with oil. So write that one. I know it took all kind of the fancy stuff out of it, didn't it? To smear with oil. Uh, it's not back then a little dabble, do you? Like we do now. Here, let me, and you kind of go like this. Don't get it. Just put it, just a little dab right there. Doop. No, this is a pouring out and a smearing on. And if you, want a, if you want a word picture, go to Psalm 133, verse 2. And the oil was all over Aaron and it dripped down from his head, on his beard, down his robe. That's the literal meaning. That's the way anointings took place in the Old Testament. I mean, we're talking about vats. You know, we're talking about standing under, gushing, like fire hose-like. I mean, it's coming. The, the oil's coming. And you'll probably, you know, be getting it out of your ears three months later. I mean, it's just... 
that's what they did. It's beautiful. And for me, this is beautiful. When I picture this, and I want you to use your imagination with me, because the term Messiah or, or Mashika or Mashak is the Hebrew term, or Christ is the Greek term uh, for the anointed one. Now catch this. It literally means to be the smeared one. <laughs> There's the smeared one. It's a pouring out. It's a smearing of oil over the person to mark to demark them, to set them aside for special service. That's really what this is all about. So when we're anointed today, how are we set aside spiritually? What is the New Testament uh, anointing or smearing on you? It is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called to set us aside, to set us apart so that for, for special service. And that's what this anointing is all about, that Typically, those that were anointed in the Old Testament were your prophets, priests, and kings. They were the ones that were set aside. They were the ones that are called for special service. So how does that apply to you? What are you today? I mean, spiritually now, Jesus has come. His life, his death, his resurrection. You've been redeemed. You're a believer. You're walking in faith. And you're, listen, you're not just a nobody when Jesus comes. Because the Bible, the New Testament, refers to you as prophet, priests, and kings as well. I love, I love the, 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 the way this translates, that we are now marked to, to perform the services of God, that we're marked to do what God has called us to do. So that's what you see here in the anointing. But listen, the ultimate anointed one, that, that's what this is all about, pointing you toward Jesus, the ultimate, the ultimate smeared one, will be the son of David. Jesus Christ the King. Everything's pointing right to Jesus. Now I'm going to give you three things really quick here that will help you summarize what happens in chapters 16 and 17. Let me tell you what it is. I think this is pretty, pretty easy, pretty easy for us to get a hold of. This is pretty basic stuff, but here it is. Saul is rejected as a king. Samuel e is e dejected because Saul is rejected. And David is selected in Saul's place. You catch that? So here we go again. Uh, Saul is rejected. Samuel is dejected. David is selected. That happens in these two chapters. So if you want to write at the top of your Bible, you're taking notes, you put those three things down. You have conquered 16 and 17. I mean, you'll, you, anyone can talk, you'll know about 16 and 17. So when you look at this, starting in chapter 16, I want you to go over verse 1 through 5 with me. It says this. The Lord said to Samuel... That's the prophet and the kind of the prototype of a judge that was going to come later. How long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? How long? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But, but Samuel said, how can I go there? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. That's literally his life would have been under threat by doing um, an undesignated sacrifice. Not a good thing. The kings need to know about this. You need to get their permission because this is a sacred kind of thing. So he says he's going to kill me if he hears about it, especially if I'm bringing in your, your successor. That's not a good thing. And, and, and then what happens here? I love this. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. That's what he's saying. Now, what kind of sacrifice would this be? It would be known as a fellowship sacrifice or a, or a thanksgiving. You know what it is? It's a holy barbecue. 
That's what it is. And, and that was permissible. You could get together with family and friends and have this holy barbecue with goats and heifers and all kinds of things. So God says, do it this way, and you're going to be just fine. So invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. So why, why would they be trembling when they're meeting Samuel? Well, they have good reason to tremble because prophets and, and, prophets and judges, they had a messy job. I mean, one of their jobs was to whack the bad guy. So if you go to chapter 15 here, Samuel's the one that kills King Agag. I mean, and it isn't pretty when you read about what happens. So this guy's coming to town. Don't picture a prophet like you think a prophet. Picture some, some pretty tough stuff, John the Baptist kind of stuff. And so he shows, he shows up, and they're going, oh, no, is he here to kill us? What's he going to do to us? I mean, what, the, judge, the judge and the prophet shows up in our little town in Bethlehem. We're in trouble. And, and Samuel puts him at ease and says, hey, I've come to bring peace to you. That's what I'm doing. Yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice the Lord. Consecrate yourselves. Come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them, uh, invited them to the sacrifice. Listen, there's no doubt when you read this. Uh, let's get to the human side. There's no doubt that Samuel is dejected. Uh, you know, he has every reason to be dejected. That he's mourning that God's rejection of King Saul. Why is this so personal? Listen, Samuel, Samuel wanted this to work. You've experienced that. Maybe you've had an employee or people around you and you really want to see them succeed and they don't. It's painful. It's absolutely painful when you see that. Here's the pain that he's feeling. He's the one who anointed Saul. He's the one who's feeling the pain now. The word Mourning here literally means being torn apart. He's torn apart inside because Samuel isn't making it. But here's what I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for God because he's never surprised. You know, when, when this happened, God wasn't going, uh-oh. Like, what are we going to do now? He wasn't biting his fingernails thinking, oh, man, i got to figure out a plan. i got to go back into the little workshop, sort this whole thing out. That's not what God was doing. God knew where he was going to go from here. God knew he was headed to a man named Jesse's house. God was going to that place. This was not a surprise. So God sends Samuel to the house of Jesse where the next king will be anointed. First, this has reason to make Samuel fearful again because Saul finds out he's dead. Samuel does what God said. And now the town of Bethlehem, again, like I said, is trembling. And so they see that happening. Listen, um, it's important to know the dynamics there because they're, they're waiting. They want Samuel there, but wow, they don't know why he's there. They're all a hot mess right now. They're all running. One, Saul's upset, and, and, uh, and the people of Bethlehem are upset. Uh, they're just until God tells Samuel to go and have a Thanksgiving offering, to go have a fellowship offering. Go do this, and things are going to work out. And that's exactly what he does. And then you go to verse 6. Read with me just for a moment. It says, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eli and thought, surely the Lord's anointing stands be here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I, I rejected him. And the Lord does not look at things people look at. 
people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab and, and, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. And Jesse then had Shammah um, pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Uh, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. And we just ran out of boys. What's happening here? He's not that the Lord hasn't. If you could imagine, Samuel was a little confused, like, wait a minute. Have I missed that mark? Have you done that before? Man, did I miss God on this? Did I miss God? Samuel's probably going, man, I think I miss God on this. I think I do. And and what happens? Um, uh, so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? No, no, there is still the youngest. In Hebrew, you know what that word means? The punk. It actually is not an endearing term, even from his father. His father is saying, no, I got a punk kid. Hadn't really amounted to much. I, he's, I don't know, where is he? Consults a little bit. Oh, whoa, 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 he's out tending sheep. That's where he's at. He's tending sheep, and Samuel sinned for him, and we will not sit down. We are not going to do anything until he shows up. And so what happens here? Think about this. Samuel's standard for a king was appearance. Jesse's standard for a king was age. God's standard for a king is the heart. Whole different way of, of judging what's going on around you. Now listen, I want to say this, be clear, because some people have used that passage. You, you grew up in church, you've heard this. You know, God does, you know, God judges the heart. Um, listen, this isn't a judgment or a critical statement. This is the truth. You all judge the appearance. Because we don't have God's ability to look into the heart. It takes time. So all God is saying is, you guys judge appearance, I judge the heart. I look into the heart. That's what, that's what I pay attention to. We all judge that appearance. I mean, when you think about it, let me ask you a question. What nation do you think looks into the mirror on average more than any other nation on the planet? Uh, say Americans? How many say Americans? 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 Italians. Yeah. Americans look in the mirror about four to five hours a week. That's about how long they, on average, look in a mirror. Um, Ron, where do you come up with this stuff? But I just needed to know how vain are we? You know, I just want to know how that plays out. So there, there is, we're looking in the mirror. And we need God's word to be our mirror. And James says God's word is your mirror. Don't look in the mirror mirror. Look in the God's word mirror. And then what will happen is things will work out in your life. So here we have this. Jesse had eight sons, but he only invited seven to the party. Imagine how you feel. Now, as this story unfolds, this is going to be relevant. I want to bring the relevancy to this to you because it's important. It's something we all feel. Hey, wait, they got 10 guys out there. They're picking for teams, and guess what? I'm the 10th, and they didn't even see me. They want me to be the water boy. They want me to be the one that tends the sheep. That's what they want me to be. So you go now to 1 Samuel, go 16, and look at 12 through 18. So he sent for them, had him brought in, and he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Isn't it interesting? He was still good looking. So his good looks didn't 
didn't disqualify him. Saul was the same way, but it was his heart that disqualified him. Uh, so you see this happening. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brother. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Uh, now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. Sad story here. And an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendant said to him, see an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let your Lord, command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre, a little uh, guitar. <laughs> he will play when the evil spirit comes uh, from God comes upon you. He will play when the evil spirit comes, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. And one of the servants answered, you know, I've seen the son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. Uh, he's a brave man, a warrior. He speaks well. He's fine looking. Uh, and the Lord is with him. And so there you go. A little resume there. Bring him in. I want this guy. Isn't it interesting? He's still really not recognized or he, he's not really that known. So what do they do? They bring him in. David, the little brother, had, in other descriptions, red hair, beautiful eyes. He was good looking. But the spirit comes on him. And the thing that I'm constantly praying for my own life for you Lord, let your spirit come on us. Lord, let your spirit fill us. Let your spirit please make us alive. Now, we know that today God has command over all realms. Uh, we know he has command over the demonic realm. We know he has command over the heavenly realms. He is in command. That we don't worry. That we don't fear because of what Jesus has done for us. It's what he's done for all of us. And what I appreciate about this, it says David loves Saul greatly. If you go down a little, David loves Saul. Hear this. Who is going to become his arch enemy, Saul, David says, I love the man. I don't know if that's on my resume. I don't know. But it says that, that he loved him. And, and you see the indications of that love trickle through the story. You see it. It's authentic. It's real. Totally, totally despondent when he cut the hem of Saul's garment while Saul was using his little cave for a bathroom. And he's totally out of it because of what he does. He goes, I did this. I mean, it's horrible. Okay, he loves this guy. And I, I, I read this. I go, Lord, let us be like this. I want to be like this. Where do you think that David went after the anointing? So where did he go after he was anointed by Samuel in that first anointing? This, this is so cool. So if you're going to be anointed king, things might change for you economically and all other ways, you'd think. Uh, not for David. Where does David go after this? Right back to the fields of Bethlehem. <laughs> oh, there it went. I had my anointing, and now I'm in the fields of Bethlehem. How many have done that before? Have you, you know, you got this great thing that's happened, and then you turn around, and you're going, Hello? Hello, and you know, the, that's why we don't want to look for fame. Because that's about as echoey and as hollowy as it gets. Just the last year, I, I just remember we, we, this church was being blessed by our community. And I thought, this is so cool, and it was exciting. And, it's, Whoa, and there was a lot of fanfare. And, and in the middle, I'm, I'm down the road a little ways in the middle of this. And I'm not being a spoil sport or throwing a wet blanket on something. But in the middle of this, you know what I'm doing? I'm thinking to myself, I wonder when this is going to end. I mean, you know, 
it ended Monday, by the way, so it lasted 36 hours. But if that's all you were living on, you're so in trouble. And so David goes back. What does he do? He, ste- he keeps doing what he's supposed to do. What happens now? And I wanna, I'm going to wrap it up with this. I want you to see 17 verses 1 through 10 because here's where it gets good. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war. They assembled in Soko in Judah. They pitched camp in where they were. Uh, Pephis Damin is the place they were. Uh, between Soko and Azaka. Now what happens here is they're all lining up in the valley uh, of Elah. And I want you to picture this with me. Picture this with me. The valley of Elah is a natural battlefield. I was close to it the other day. It's a natural battlefield. It's actually S-formed, and it runs from north to south or south to north, however you want to say it. Part of the Great Rift, that whole thing in there. It's a beautiful place for a country, but it's a beautiful place for a battle. And so you have, imagine, on the western slope, you have the Philistines. On the eastern slope, you have, you have the Israelites uh, because that's where they've come from the east. The Philistines have come from the coast, and they're standing there. What happens is they have this giant. I mean, he's a ringer. The dude is a ringer, and they bring him out. Can you imagine this? Have you ever gone and play a game, and then you look across the other side, looked at the other bench, and went, uh-oh. That's what they did. They looked and went, uh-oh. His, he, his armor weighed 126 pounds. His spearhead weighed 15 pounds. And, and he was yelling. He was taunting. He, he was asking, Philistine, he was saying, where are, are the servants of Saul? Choose a man and let him come down to me. And we'll fight together. We'll fight together. If I win, you're our subjects. If you win, we'll be your subjects. So what happens here when you read this story? The battle is at a stall. Forty days. There was no battle. And then you read about them drawing lines. And David then, in verses 11 through 20, it says, Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left things with the keeper of supplies, and he ran to the battle lines. You know, I looked that up. He, he rode a horse. It was about a three-hour ride from Bethlehem to the Valley of Elah. So he got there. He's a delivery boy. He's bringing a little Domino's pizza to his brothers. I mean, that's what his dad asked him to do. When he gets there, he says, uh, uh, when you get there, just see how they are and whoop, hightail it back home. I love one little statement. It says, and when David left, he picked a shepherd to care for his sheep. Big deal. Big deal. When you think you might be getting promoted, what do you do with the job you already have? How important are those people? How important is that responsibility? Or are you just moving on to the next thing? Man, that one caught me. I thought, wow. David was a man of integrity. Gets up at 6 a.m., probably showed up about 4 or uh, 10 in the uh, morning. And they're, they're seeing these things happen. And he's standing there listening. He shows up. And he was talking with, uh, as he was talking with Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath stepped out from his lines and he shouted his usual defiances. And David hears it. And when the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man is coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. And the king will uh, give great wealth to the man who kills him. And David's sitting there. He's, he's listening to all this. He's going, huh, man, this sounds all right. Because, see, the, the, the Goliath, when, you, when you're so confident in what God's doing in your life, Goliath was not a big enemy. He was just a big target. And he's looking at him and he's going, 
is anybody else listening to this? Is anyone else hear what this guy's doing? And his brother really gets ticked off at him because his brother calls him a pompous so-and-so. He does. And, and he's going, man, you guys got to be kidding me. And he goes, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And they repeat to him, <laughs> they repeat to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him, trying to entice David. Now, I said this was going to be so important for us. And I'm going to tell you why. Goliath worked just like Satan. You need to know the strategies of the enemy in your life. He will come after you morning, noon, and night. That's exactly what Goliath did. Three times he'd show up. He gets more and more aggressive. It says he gets actually starts leaning in and coming down toward the battle line between the Philistines and the Israelites. Listen, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, what did he do? Every temptation he said, thy word has said this. The reason I'm saying that is because he was tempted when he was at his weakest. Now, I know there's temptations in other places in our life. But in these cases, I'm thinking they knew they were their weakest, the Israelites. I think they understood that. Each time Jesus was tempted and prevailed, the devil kept on looking for opportunity. Would you know this? The devil is an opportunist. When's the next time the devil shows up in Jesus' life? It's in the garden of Gethsemane. Know and understand the tactics of the enemy. Know what he's up to. And I want you to know that God is doing a good work in all of our lives. He's showing us what we need to see. And then you go to this place in chapter 17, verses 28 through 33, where you see about Eliab getting mad, his brothers getting mad. And he's saying, who is this? I, I know how conceited you are, he says. How wicked your heart is. He's talking to David. You came down only to watch the battle. You came down to watch people. You, you want to get in the gore. It's like a video game. You just want to come down and watch people get shot and killed and beat up. That's what he said. And then he turned away to someone else, and he brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was... Was overheard and reported to Saul. What happens is Saul goes, man, I'm out, of, I'm out of options, man. I don't know what to do. Bring the little boy in. So he comes and he stands before him. And he's looking at him going, are you kidding me? He's going, man, you better take some of my armor. And David has nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with it. He says, no, I'm going to fight. And the word goes on and it says this, that David said, I want you to know, Saul, that I've killed a lion, I've killed a bear, I've done all these things. I want, to, I want you to know why that's important, because I think that's the first time he says it. Makes sense, because if you knew of someone who killed a lion and a bear, wouldn't you think they'd have a good resume to bring them out to fight the Philistines? No one does it. He did this in anonymity. He didn't want any, and I think God said when he was killing the lion, when he was killing the bear, going, Not a good time for your own press release. Listen, there are times in our life God's just going to do something wonderful, do something great, but God's going to go, shh. And you don't know if God's ever going to release that press release or if he does or if he doesn't. But you're trusting in him. Listen, we need to trust in him with our press releases because he has the right time. He knows. And I'm thinking right here at this moment, God says to David, now you can talk. Now you can tell me. And David tells him. Changes the whole thing. 
You know what's interesting? Because when David went to fight that giant, I'm going to finish with this. David's enemy that day was not just a giant. Please hear this, because it's the same enemies we have today. You think, well, how does this apply to me? There's no giant. I don't see any giants. They're not giants. But think about this. He has a father who disregarded him, a painful father. I, I, don't, I can't imagine. His brother belittles him. His king has no confidence in him. But what does David say? Perfect conditions for a victory. And he goes out with the courage of God's spirit in his life. And he takes care of a giant. I want you to remember, David woke up that morning as a delivery boy. He went to bed that night as a champion warrior. You have been called to be champions. I want to read this to you and we're going to finish. Know in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you, us, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And can you put an exclamation on that? Amen. Would you bow your head with me? Father, we are so grateful today that you teach us these lessons and you pull them right off the, the pages of your word and bring them alive. So, Lord, e even as we leave today, I'm just praying over all of us that uh, the way that I started, that you would allow us to have a passionate curiosity for you and your word. We need that. Ignite that in us. Keep blinders on us so that we see you, not turn to the right or to the left, but we see you and we see you clearly. We ask these things, all of these things, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.